Talk Recorded live. Hello, once again, it's Mike. And we're going to read some more out of uh, A Man of Rock Endurance, Job, Charles Wendell. I know, I think I'm absolutely nuts, but I think it's the best thing I can do in this position that I'm in at this moment. Chapter 21, What Job Teaches Us About Ourselves. Children have a way of saying things that often make us smile. They don't mean to be funny, but more often than not, they are. This usually happens when they're answering questions, serious questions. They give their opinion, and we can't help but laugh. Take, for example, the subject of love and marriage. How do you decide who to marry? Christine, age 10. No person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all the way before you get to find out later who you're stuck with. How can a stranger tell if two people are married? Derek, 8. You might have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. What do you think your mom and dad have in common? Lori, age eight, both don't want any more kids. When is it okay to kiss someone? Pam, age seven, when they're rich. Kurt, seven, the law says you have to be 18, so I won't want to mess with that. Is it better for single to be single or married? Annetta, age nine, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. How would you make a marriage work? Ricky, age 10, tell your wife that she looks pretty even if she looks like a truck. Some of the notes that have been handed or emails to me about my sermons and Job have been hilarious. One child asked her daddy if their pastor's name was now Job. Another 10-year-old kept giving me pictures he had drawn depicting the scenes I described in one sermon after another. You should see some of those boils. Finally, as I got near the end of the book, he stopped drawing. No more pictures. But I did get a small two-sentence note, which read, Can you find another subject? I've run out of ideas. God, I love that honesty. This is a good time for me to command you, commend you for staying with me this far. Bless you. By now, you know two things for sure. First, this isn't shallow entertainment and Easy story to stay interested in. Second, there's reasons. There's a reason there's there aren't many books written on Job. It may not be very exciting, and it certainly isn't a simple plot to unravel. But what Job lacks in popular appeal, he makes up for in realism. The long hallways of a leukemia ward in a hospital may not be exciting, 
or creative, but each room contains people asking the same questions and wrestling with the same issues as Joe. Exciting and entertaining as it isn't, but substantive. 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 And real. In spades. What happens in places like that and not in books like this is you're is you find yourself paying less attention to the temporal and the externals. You give increasingly more attention to the internals. Internal. You want to go on deep within. Soul searching replaces channel surfing. You start asking questions that are hard to answer. You think a lot deeper about the things all all of this is teaching you. We've come to that place in this book. What does Job teach us about ourselves? In my final chapter, we'll consider what Job teaches us about our God. My primary goal in this chapter may surprise you. It is neither to inform you nor reprove. You've had enough of both in the previous 20 chapters and I certainly don't need to repeat details 20 chapters 21 yes we are we must be on 21 already alright yeah my primary goal of this chapter may surprise you. It is neither inf- to inform nor reprove. You've had enough of both in the previous 20 chapters. I certainly don't need to repeat the details of the story. I've done that so often. You probably are starting to feel like a pianist rehearsing familiar scales to a monotonous tick of a metronome. Metronome. My goal is to intensify your enthusiasm for life, to move you from the day-to-day toleration of the status quo mentally and to renew your drive for really drive to really come alive. The word is passion. Benjamin Zender, professor at New England Conservatory of Music, illustrates what I'm hoping to accomplish. A young pianist, pianist was playing Chopin's prelude, Chopin's prelude in my master class, and although we had worked right up to the edge of realizing an overarching concept of the piece, his performance remained earthbound. He understood it intellectually. He could have explained it to someone else, but he was unable to convey the emotional energy that is the true language of music. Then I noticed something that proved to be the key. His body was firmly centered in the upright position. I blurted out, the trouble is you're, you're a two-buttocks player. I encouraged him to allow his whole body to flow sideways, 
urging him to catch the wave of the music with the sharp with the shape of his own body and suddenly the music took flight several in the audience gasped feeling the emotional dart hit home as a new distinction was born the one buttocks player the president of the corporation of a corporation in Ohio who was present at as a witness wrote to me I was so moved that I went home and transformed my whole company into a one buttocks company I never did find out what he meant by that but I have my own ideas I met Jacqueline Dupree in the 1950s when I was 20 and she was 15 a cocky English schoolgirl who blossomed into the greatest celloist of her generation we performed a two cello quintet for Sherbert together and I remembered her playing was like a tidal wave of intensity and passion when she was six years old the story goes she went into her first competition as a cellist and she was seen running down the corridor carrying her cello above her head with a huge grid of excitement on her face a custodian noted what she took to be relief on the little girl's face said I see you've just had your chance to play and Jackie answers excitedly no no I just about I am just about to even at six Jackie was a conduit for music to pour through put bluntly my hope is to help you become a one buttocks player on life's keyboard not satisfied with pounding out another year of dull predictable notes and chords but throwing yourself full bore into the symphony seven lessons worth remembering there was a man in the land of use whose name was Job and that man was blameless and upright and fearing God and turning away from evil Job 1 1 we soon discovered Job and his wife had seven sons and three daughters his possessions were great with thousands of sheep and camel along with half a thousand oxen and donkeys in fact the word was out on this man he was the greatest of all the men of the East there was no other known or probably no one wealthier Job had it made without his knowing it a dialogue took place in an invisible world above as the Lord and Satan had their strange encounter the subject quickly turned to this well-known earthly individual the Lord called Satan's attention to his exemplary life and Satan responds with a sinister sneer of course who wouldn't serve you the way you've pr prospered and protected him take away all the perks and watch what happens the man will turn on you in a flash God agrees to let the adversary unload on Job and so in today's terms the Lord <coughs> bet him that would never happen Philip Yancey refers to this agreement as the divine wager Satan 
instigates a sudden and hostile removal of all the man's possessions, leaving him bankrupt. Within a matter of minutes, everything he owned was gone. This brings us to the first of seven lessons worth remembering. We never knew ahead of time the plans God has for us. Job had no prior knowledge or warning. This mo- that morning dawned like every other morning. The night had passed like any other night. There was no great angelic manifestation, not even a tap on his window or a note left on the kitchen table. And, uh, and one calamity after another, all the buildings of his land are gone. Nothing but lumber and bodies litter the landscape. It occurred so fast, Job's mind swirled in disbelief. Everything hit broadside. His world's instantly changed. You and I must learn from this. We never know what a day will bring, good or ill. Our heavenly, or good or ill, our heavenly Father's plan unfolds apart from our awareness. Ours is a walk of faith, not sight, trust, not touch, leaning long and hard not running away. No one knows ahead of time what the Father's plans include. It's best that way. It may be a treasured blessing. It could be a test that drops us on our knees. He knows ahead of time, but he is not obligated to warn us about it or to remind us it's on horizon. We can be certain of this. Our God knows what is best. Read the following scripture slowly. And thoughtfully, I know, O oh Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it a man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O oh Lord, but with justice, not with your anger, or you will bring me to nothing. Jeremiah 10, verses 23 and 24. For I know the plans that I have for you, declared the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, verses 11 through 13. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16.9 Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Proverbs 26.24 For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declared the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, 
so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety of him, because he cares for you. First Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Did you do as I asked? Did you read each one slowly and thoughtfully? No. The ultimate plan of our Lord has for us not uh, a calamitous, fatalistic, heartbreaking, life-ending set of events designed to weaken and destroy our faith. On the contrary, it is a plan that is for our welfare to give us a future and a hope writes the prophet Jeremiah. But that doesn't mean it will be easy and comfortable because he is God of the unexpected. It will be surprising. It will be different than you or I would have ever pondered or planned and for that matter preferred. Therefore, to increase your passion for life, I have some pretty simple advice. Be ready for anything. And I do mean anything. One of my friends at our church told me that one of his longtime friends who had a well-paying job at Ed's EDS got notice from the, the National Guard that he was being called up. No heads-up warning. This meant an immediate change of lifestyle. He had to leave his excellent occupation in order to serve in the Guard. He and his wife and several kids needed to sell their lovely home. She was forced to adjust to a completely different world without the constant companionship and support of her husband. Who knows where they will have to live, what schools the children will be attending, and how safe he will be during his tour of military duty. It came like a bolt out of the blue. We have no guarantee that life will rock along for us as it has in the past years. What you enjoy today as a result of your good job and great health may not be enjoying this time next year and six months from now. This isn't, of course, designed to frighten you. It's designed to help prepare you for a whole new way of thinking. Our time's are in his hands. Have you ever meditated on that thought? I mean, really believed it? Job responds, you will recall, is as Job's response, you recall, is absolutely remarkable. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's a second lesson worth remembering: a virtual perspective. Excuse me, a vertical perspective will keep us from horizontal panic. Don't misunderstand Job's response to the devastation. Job didn't escape into some mental state of denial. He faced the music so somber and sad that it was. He was so overwhelmed by all the loss 
He tore his robe. He was broken and saddened and grieved over the death of his kids. That's why he shaved his head and later sat in ashes. In fact, these reactions assure us he refused to escape emotionally through denial. But don't miss his ultimate response. He fell to the ground and worshipped. Amen to that. His vertical perspective is clear and undaunting. Nothing that happened on the horizontal plane will cause this man to panic. It's as if Job is saying, I had, I enjoyed, I was blessed. I am now without those benefits. They're no longer a part of my world. I'm heartbroken over the loss of my family, but the same God who gave all this by his grace is the God who is his so- who is who in his sovereign will has chosen to take each one away. I honor and praise him. May his name be forever exalted. Much earlier in the book that's amazing. That's an amazing paragraph right there. Much earlier in this book, I quoted the profound words of Francis Anderson. Time has a way of erasing important thoughts which should be retained since one of the secrets of memory is review. Allow me to repeat several lines worth a second look. Joe finds nothing wrong with what has happened to him. As this point, at this point, Job's trials enter a new phase, the most trying of all. He never curses God, but all his human relationships are broken. His attitude is the same as before. It is equally right for God to give gifts and to retrieve them. It is equally right for God to send good or evil. Such positive faith is the magic stone of the tr- that transmutes all the gold. When the bad as well as the good is received at the hand of God, every experience of life becomes an occasion of blessing. But the cost is high. It is easier to lower your view of God than to raise your faith to such a height. When life trucks along comfortably and contently, in good health and with a happy family, my, my, how high our, our view of God can be. How thrilled we are with all those wonderful verses of Scripture, how we hang on the words of the pastor, pastor's sermon. How fervently we sing the songs of celebration, but let hardship arrive and let our health take a nosedive. How quickly our song is silenced. How cynical our attitude. How sore our faith becomes. Truth of matters for me, I didn't have faith until that happened. It's the complete opposite for me. Oh well. How quickly we are tempted to lower our view of God. The man is correct. It is easy to question God when hard times replace good times. A strong vertical perspective fans the flames of passion. Well, it's only it well, it only got worse. Job does not sin or blame God, which 
frustrates Satan, but does not surprise our God. He knows Job would continue in his integrity. As the next day dawn, Satan comes up, comes out swinging. The Lord asks, "Have you noticed my servant Job?" It must have been a great moment when the Lord could point to Job, who has demonstrated no break in his faith, no doubt in his trust, and Satan has to face the music, refusing to accept defeat. The accuser flashes a cynical sneer once again. Satan answers the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power, only spare his life. You know all too well what happened. As soon as he got the green light, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job leveled to the ground, literally. His pain is beyond description. His fever is raging. He can't eat, can't sleep. There's no sign of relief. His misery knows no bounds. Watching him suffer is more than his wife can endure. Seeing him sitting there in the ash heap, she can say she can she can stay quiet no longer. She allows herself to say the unthinkable. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and and die. She loved him. Never doubted it. His sickness hasn't made her love him less. Her compassion overruns her better better judgment. And in an unguarded moment, she gives herself the freedom to verbalize an alien thought. If you will curse God, he will take you home, on home. You and I both know this act will swiftly end the suffering. Can you imagine the breathless anticipation of Satan at that moment. Job may be misery, be in misery, but he has enough presence of mind to detect heresy when he hears it. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? That statement provides us with a third lesson, discernment. Discernment is needed to detect wrong advice from well-meaning people. Those words whispered in his ear came from his wife. She loved him through ten births. She loved him through the rearing of all their children. She loved him from, from the lean early days in the business through the years of the great prosperity when they could at last enjoy some relief. Maybe, maybe not. We don't really know this. This woman loved him when he was a nobody, and she continued to love him when he became a household word in every home of the East. Job has known her love through all the years, but uh, that has not blinded him from realizing her counsel is wrong. Though spoken by one who loves me and wants the best for me, I dare not heed her advice. Consider her counsel long enough and understand how far off she was. She is questioning what God had admired, and she is encouraging what Satan had predicted. Think about it. God had said to Satan, He 
still holds fast his integrity, and she suggests Job no longer sustain your integrity. <clears throat> Obviously, Satan is using her. Satan had said, he will curse you to your face, and she says to the, the man she loves, Job, just curse God. The devil was on tiptoe, urging, yes, 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 do it. You know this. His demons were at work trying to fervently, uh, trying fervently to weaken him, but Job stand firm. stands firm. He discerns the error and flat out rejects it. Job knew he could not, in good faith, follow her advice, no matter how well-meaning she was. His response reveals his inner discipline, his words are bold and blunt. He told her, You are talking like an empty-headed fool. We take the good days from God. Why not also the bad days? That is found in the message. <clears throat> what great theology. God isn't our God only when times are good. Our faith in him isn't limited to those days he blesses us. We don't claim him as our God only when he gets when we get what we want. He's our God even when adversity strikes. He is the Lord of the good days and the bad days. He didn't leave us the day I started suffering. Job was right on. Talk about a passion. Consider the fourth lesson. When things turn from bad to worse and sound, theology helps you us remain strong and stable. It is a sign of maturity that Job, after suffering such a barrage of cataclysmic events, would be thinking so clearly and so correctly without wavering. And no uncertainty. The man did not entertain her suggestion for a moment. You speak as a fool. He was he it was his immediate reaction. Surely you know by now these lips cannot curse God. Death is in his hands, not mine. When he's ready to take me, he'll take me. How could Joe do that? Do it. He was guarded in his knowledge of God. In times like that, sound theology is invaluable. Reminds me of Charles Schultz, Schultz's cartoon I saw early year. I saw several years ago, excuse me, remember uh, Peanuts? Linus, with his blanket, is standing at, the pit, at a pitcher window in the family room. Standing beside him is Lucy, who, of course, is in charge. They are watching the rain, and it is coming down in sheets. They can hardly see the trees in the backyard. Linus says, my, look at all that rain. If this keeps up, it's going to flood this whole area, maybe the whole, the whole world. And Lucy answers without hesitation, that will never happen. It says in Genesis 9, verse 7 to 17, that God will never again flood the earth. And he points, and he put a rainbow in the sky to prove that his promise is true. Linus looks at her, shakes his head, and says, You've taken a, a big load off my mind. She responds immediately, sound theology has a way of doing that. Maybe her husband's 
retort took a big load off Mrs. Job's mind. How memorable it is when one who is suffering can teach the one who is well. Sound theology provides the foundation like nothing else. Quick reminder here. Be careful that you never substitute psychological gobbledygook for good biblical theology. Work hard and not work work hard at not weakening your theology theological foundation by double talk. Don't go there. It will backfire on you when you least expect it. On my birthday, I got one of my favorite kinds of greeting cards, one of those funny far side cards. These there's a guy hanging by his collar on the limb of a tree. His feet and legs are dangling about two feet off the ground. He limps and helpless. He's limp and helpless as the camera hangs loosely around his neck. Two huge bears are off to the side discussing his fate. One bear says to the other, His name is Bradshaw. He says he understands I came from a single parent den with inadequate role models. He senses that my dysfunctional behavior is shame-based and codependent, and he urges me to let my inner cub heal. A little pause for thought. Then he concludes, I say we eat him. Trick with sound theology. Excuse me, stick with sound theology. Steer clear of pop psychology with its confusing uh, nomenclature. It seems reasonable at the moment, but when you need something of substance, it will neither stabilize nor strengthen you. A life of passionate enthusiasm needs to stay grounded on granite-like theological truth. Finally, Job's friends show up. That's when things turn south. But you wouldn't know that right away. At first, they seemed like reasonable and caring men. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all the adversity that had come upon them, they came each one from their own place, life as the Timonites, and Bildad the Shahite, and Zophar the Namathite, I guess. Uh, and they made an appointment together to come and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lift up their eyes at the distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore their robe and they drew dust they threw dust over their heads towards the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Job 2, 11-13. This introduces us to the fifth lesson worth remembering. Caring and sensitive friends know when to come and how to respond and what to say. And when to go, by the way. I so wish Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar had simply stayed silent, remained near 
to comfort Job and his wife and brought a bowl of sound, a bowl of soup or broth or a cool cup of water when needed. These men qualified on the first two. On the fir- these men qualified on the first two, didn't they? They knew when to come to Job, and soon they got word of his devastating circumstances. They dropped everything and came to his side, and at least initially, for seven days, they responded the right way. They simply sat alongside. No doubt they hurt for him and prayed for the man and his wife and hoped to sympathize and hope to sympathize and comfort. We who have been hospitalized know the joy of looking across the room and seeing the faces of a couple of or three friends. When comfort I yeah, I guess that's good. What comfort you know, what comfort to know they cared enough to be near. Down deep inside we're grateful they're not saying much. They're not in our face preaching to us or trying to explain why we're suffering. They're just staying near. Love brought them. Compassion flows from them. And gentleness draws us to them. When the wheels started coming off the carts, excuse me, but the wheels started coming off the cart when those same men broke the silence. They felt the need to open Job's eyes and spell out the reasons for his afflictions. Perhaps they meant, well, when they started, but their good advice quickly eroded. They rebuked him. They questioned his motives. They probed ever deeper for hidden secret sins. The damage they did was unconscionable. All of us who desire to live life with passion need to spend some time evaluating our compassion. You and I will sometimes find ourselves in role in the role of caring of a caring friend, hopefully a sensitive friend. Everyone who is hurting needs a friend, a friend outside the family. They don't need many, only a few faithful friends. Yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, these are the ones who bring comfort and sensitive spirit to the hurting. They are rare, they are reassuring, and their reassuring presence is invaluable. Invaluable. We need friends who love us genuinely and on occasion friends who comfort us wisely or confront us wisely. David comes to mind early on, not long after being anointed as the future king of Israel, the young giant killer finds himself hunting and haunted by King Saul, who became insanely jealous of him. Saul's son, Jonathan, hears the inappropriate comments his father makes about David. He knows that they are inaccurate and prejudiced and extreme. He senses real trouble brewing in his father's heart. Overnight, Jonathan takes up the cause of David and becomes David's closest friend. He seeks him out wherever David is hiding. He won't let David suffer alone. He listens, he reassures, he understands, he offers words of hope and encouragement. That's the role Jonathan filled. He loved him as he loved his own life. First Samuel 20, 17. As time 
passes, both Saul and Jonathan die violent, tragic deaths. David becomes the king, and many years later, he plunges into a snake pit of carnality, adultery, murder, and shameless hypocrisy. Not surprisingly, this took a terrible toll on his leadership. Out of the shadows emerged another faithful friend, Nathan, who is equally sensitive caring. And Nathan's role is different from Jonathan's. Nathan is used by the Lord to confront his friend and to help restore his integrity. Nathan arrests David's attention and turns his heart back to God in true repentance. Everyone needs a Jonathan. Everyone needs a Nathan. Whichever role we play, it's important to remain caring and sensitive, to know when to come and to know how to respond and what to say when we speak. Overwhelmed by this Overwhelmed by his situation, Job ultimately lets it all out. He can hold it no longer. He opens his mouth with outbursts of frustration. He curses the day he was born. He goes back nine months earlier and despises the moment he was conceived. Everything pours out in a stream of excessive words. Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which I said a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of day terrify it. He then curses the fact that he didn't die at birth. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? And why the breast that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then, and I would have been at rest. Job 3, 11-13 With that he dumps out the rest of his frustration. For what I fear comes upon me. And what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. Job 3, verse 25 and 26. Those are the explanations of a man who has come to his wit's end. He's lost everything. His health is now gone. Bringing indescribable pain and suffering doesn't end. The kids are still dead. There's not enough money to provide for what's needed. His surroundings are are atrocious. His wife is there, albeit disillusioned, urging him to pack it in. That's enough. Even a man of integrity has his limits. Job must have finished his verbal eruption with his head in his hands, heaving audible sobs. That's when a, when the friends turned to vultures and began their feeding frenzy. Such inappropriate reactions provide us with the sixth lesson. It is easy to be Monday morning quarterbacks when we're when we encounter another outburst. When we encounter another's outburst. 
Admittedly, it is not easy to hear the kind of things Job blurted out. Not being in his place and not feeling his pain and not knowing his thoughts or his fears. Not really. It is the most natural response imaginable to react. I would never say that he sh- and he shouldn't. I would never do what he he's done and he shouldn't. I would always say and do this and he should. All and all of that leads to Job. Don't say that. You're really going to regret it. But the fact is, he is the one going through it, and he is the one in the heat of the battle. He is there, and they are not. They just thought they knew what they said, or they just thought they knew what they what they say or do. What? They just thought they knew what they did say or do. I don't know. Uh, on Monday morning, quarterbacks think I would never react like that. I would never say such a thing to God. And then the clincher, this is how I would respond. I mean, how could she call herself a Christian and act like that? Why, if I were the Lord, I disciplined her for that. Monday morning, quarterbacks are notorious for knowing everything. And pointing out every mistake. We don't even wait until Monday morning. Don't throw the pass. Don't throw that pass, you idiot. They've got the split end covered. They're going to intercept if you throw it. Don't. Interception, no. When are you going to get alive? As we yell at the game on television... And most of us have never been a quarterback. We've certainly never had three or four six foot nine inch, 370 pound linemen with blood in their eyes and fangs sticking out of their lips, running full speed in our direction, uh, grinding. And we say, don't throw that thing, you dodo. Don't throw it. If I were there, I wouldn't have thrown it. I'd take the hit. I'd take a hit. Uh, yeah, sure. Stop that nonsense. Let's agree to allow our Job friend the space to unload without getting our lecture. It, is, it will help if we remember things we shouldn't have said. We, too, have said things that were wrong and inappropriate, We, too, have responded incorrectly when the heat was on. We, too, have run off at the mouth. We, too, have thrown verbal interceptions. When we died, we didn't need someone to... When we die, we didn't need someone to tell us we blew it. Within... I don't know what that... No wonder. When... We did. We didn't need someone to tell us we blew it. Within <laughs> looked like die, but it's dead. Oh well. Within seconds, we realized it. We may even think at the time we're doing it, I'm gonna regret this, but we still do it. 
you'll need this lesson, you'll need this principle, especially if you're a spiritual leader, you teach the adult Bible study, you're the counselor at church, or you're a pastor, and the staff, the world is too full of dogmatic, I told you so, or you really shouldn't, or you ought to, just be quiet, pray silently, and try hard to imagine the pain. Your life as lands is lands on him with both feet. Fists are swinging, round one, round two, round three, punching at Joe. Then Bill Dad hits him, and then Zophar beats up on him. Not one of those guys has ever gone through anything like Job is going through. So they pour out all their good advice. Friendship will not stand the strain of too much good advice for very long. We hardly need to be reminded that Job ultimately sees the error of his way. And what does he do? He openly acknowledges it. I reach retract and I repent what a great man he suffered through all of this for who knows how long weeks maybe months too long finally after proving himself a man of heroic endurance the Lord calls Joe his servant four times and then rebukes the friends who had made such a mess of the situation and it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. As we saw previously, the Lord abundantly rewarded his servant for his sustained integrity as well as his submissive spirit. But mainly God honored Job because of his faithful endurance, which provides our seventh and final lesson worth remembering. The cultivation of obedient endurance is the crowning mark of maturity. A major goal of wholesome, healthy Christians is the hope of reaching maturity before death overtakes us. I will tell you without hesitation that one of that one of my major goals in life is to grow up as I grew as I grow older. A commendable etching on the gravestone would be here lies a man who kept growing as he kept aging. Growing up and growing old need to walk hand in hand, never ever doubt it. Maturing is a slow and arduous process. Job accomplished it. He reached that goal. Small wonder he read that he died an old man. No, small wonder we read that he died an old man and full of eight, all of the days. He lived the rest of his years, 140 more, full of enthusiasm and passion, we assume. We hope. What an inevitable, what an enviable way to finish one's life. 
When trouble comes, we have two options. We can view it as an intrusion, an outrage, or we can see it as an opportunity to respond in specific obedience to God's will. This is that rugged virtue James called endurance. Endurance is not jaw-clenched resignation, nor is it passive acquiescence. I can't say it. Acquiescence. 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 It is a long, it is a long obedient in the same direction. It is a long obedience in the same direction. Is endurance is not jaw is not a jaw clenched to resignation, nor a passive acquiescence. Acquiescence, I can't say it. and it, it is a long obedience in the same direction. It is staying on the path of obedience. Despite contradictions, it is dogged determination to pursue holiness when the conditions of holiness are not favorable. It is a choice in the midst of our suffering to do what God has asked us to do, whatever it is, for as long as He asks us to do it. I forgot the S. As Oswald Chamber wrote, to choose suffering makes no sense at all. To choose God's will in the midst of our suffering makes all the sense in the world. What a way to go. Where are you today? Where is your journey leading you? More importantly, which option have you chosen? Are you viewing your trial as an outrage or an opportunity? I guess for me it's an outrage. Try hard not to forget the list of seven lessons Job teaches us about ourselves. Do you keep a journal? If you do, I've got a practical suggestion. Go back through this chapter, transfer the seven lessons onto a page in your journal, and think through your current situation and apply Whichever ones are appropriate, return to the page every month or so, and I will make an it will make an oysters. Okay, as you grow older, you will keep growing up, and instead of simply reading about the life of Job, you will begin living that kind of life that makes all the sense in the world. Time keeps on ticking, ticking into the future. All right, we got the <clears throat> 20 more pages or two chapters, I think. Well, you got chapter 22 here and then conclusions. So 
of the book, A Man of Heroic Endurance, Joe Charles R. Swindell. And once again, as I've done numerous times in the past, I apologize for uh, my ineptitude as far as reading. And uh, sometimes my lips, my mouth just don't work. And when the MS is bad, it's a real struggle. Well, there just seems to be a big glitch. That I don't know if I'll ever overcome it or not. So, but it is good for me to be doing this. Um, to read out loud and do this for many reasons. One is to keep my mind off my circumstances. And to focus on God as best as I can, as pathetic as it may be. And actually, the reading out loud thing is good for me as far as my blessed speech impediment and reading impediment and trying to get my eyes and my mouth and my tongue coordinated again in my brain, if it ever will be. I don't know. But next time we'll read chapter 22, what Job teaches us about our God. That should be good. I should go to bed. I might actually have a visitor tomorrow. That's weird. I've had visitors this week. I never have visitors. Anyways. Um, hopefully it'll be somebody that I can talk about the Lord with. I believe it's so. I believe it's probably the person, the reason why I went back to, I was motivated to go back to the meetings and, um, and find some truly God-fearing people who are more interested in, excuse me, some truly God-fearing people who are more interested in God and than trying to be us the world that you know something. So, I don't know. Yeah.